0: Uh, we are in a new season here at Grace Salamita uh, in, a, in a couple of different ways. Obviously, uh, there is a new time of worship here at 4 p.m. We're here in a new place. Uh, the building is totally different. It's got stained glass windows, which is a nice touch. Uh, different part of town. Uh, One of the things that Jeff and I have been joking about is how uh, knowing that when we were going to come back here, how we were going to be using the mic that he lovingly calls the Britney Spears mic. Um, And uh, funny enough, my uh, just just earlier, my wife saw me with this mic and she said I look like a motivational speaker, um, which I thought was probably worse than Britney Spears, to be honest, uh, as a pastor. But uh, we're, we're in a new place. It comes with new blessings. It comes with new challenges uh, in light of our new circumstances. And that's something for us to be prayerful and to be thinking about as we go in, as we begin this week and, and however many weeks that God has us here. Uh, this week was also the start of Lent. Um, you know, as, as it's the, the season of 40 days leading toward Good Friday and Easter as we prepare to celebrate Christ's death and resurrection, to observe it. Uh, And and usually this season is a time of reflection, a time of fasting, a time of prayer uh, for both self-examination and also just a time to look to Jesus and uh, to think about what he has done for us in all of who he is and what he came to do. And in light of that, uh, both the changes that our church is facing, and also uh, just the it, within the calendar of the church, looking at Lent and uh, moving toward Good Friday and Easter, it, it really is a good time for us as a church to, to spend some time thinking about, praying about what kind of church God has called us to be, what kind of uh, church God has put us here in Alameda for. You know, as we go from here to Easter, we're going to be, over the next couple of weeks, lo- be looking at the beginnings of Jesus' earthly ministry. Jesus is our king, and he came to establish a kingdom. And so what does it mean over the next couple of weeks for us to think about how Jesus as our king informs the kind of community that Grace Alameda wants to be? You know, uh, what kind of outpost of the kingdom will grace be here uh, in the East Bay? And so our series is called Kingdom Come, From here into Easter. And that's what we're going to be reflecting on for the next couple weeks. You know, if you've been following any of the politics, the recent Democratic debates, they all center uh, on discussions of values. What are the values that make up each candidate? What do they care about? What are the issues that they want to discuss? Uh, Each candidate makes a a case for the vision of the type of future they, they have... Uh, For what America should be. They're trying to give a sense of direction. A sense of purpose and a sense of hope. And as we look at the baptism of Jesus Christ. This afternoon. What we see is Jesus setting a table. For the kind of king he would be. And that uh, he would be setting the table. For the kind of kingdom that he was ushering in. And there's three values or three ways that we see him do this. First, we'll see that uh, there is a recognition before repentance in the kingdom that Jesus brings in; Second, that humility comes before honor. And lastly uh, Lastly, that there is a call to confidence before there is a calling to follow. So recognition before repentance, humility before honor, and then confidence before calling. In Matthew 3, John the Baptist has a very simple message, right? He goes around and he's baptizing in wilderness areas. And the, the message is simple. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And what that means when he's talking about the kingdom of heaven being at hand is this inbreaking of Into the earthly world of God's heavenly power and rule. That God is coming. The power, the God of heavens is coming into this earth. He's breaking in. And a new king is coming to bring a change of the status quo. And so he's going around into all these wilderness areas. Notice he's... In a lot of what we see his ministry, it's, it's never in city centers. He doesn't go into the heart of a city, but he's, he's kind of on the outskirts of areas. And he's preaching and prophesying about a kingdom that is to come. And we see in this passage two groups of people that come to listen to him. First, you have those who come and they get baptized in the Jordan River. And it's a baptism of repentance. In that time, Greek philosophers, they understood that repentance was about having a change of mind. Um, To to repent of something was really just hearing a convincing argument and saying, You know what? I could see things that way. And beginning to just think of something differently without any real wholesale change to one's life. And yet the kind of repentance that John was talking about was very different from the way they understood it in that time period. John was talking about a true repentance. The type of repentance we're probably more familiar with. Wholehearted, ethical, moral, uh, spiritual, emotional change. A reorientation, not just of your view of something, not just of your position on something, but a reorientation of your values, of your habits, of your passions. And so a lot of these people, as they repented, it was a whole self giving in of turning and looking and becoming someone different. And so as they recognized this need for change. As they recognized that God was coming. Heaven was breaking into earth. And all everything was going to be different. Meaning that they themselves needed to see a change in their own lives. That as they recognized that need. They were baptized by John in the Jordan. Baptism itself, in, in, and, in and of itself, wasn't a strange act uh, for that day. It wasn't something that was brand new. So it wasn't just because they did baptism that suddenly people were like, what's this whole water thing that's going on? Uh, it was very common within Judaism to, to uh, baptize Greek uh, Gentile converts. So whenever someone recognized Yahweh as the true God, but they weren't an Israelite, they would be baptized As a a sign of their newfound desire to obey the Israelite God. But what made John different? What made this baptism here different? And perhaps controversial for his time. Was that he was baptizing not just Gentiles who were repenting. But he was baptizing Jews as well. And so for the the whole Israelite community watching this and seeing him do this. This would have been a problem. This would have been a mind-blowing thing right why is john baptizing the children of abraham we're ethnically chosen by god we were born into this i don't need a sign to tell me that i'm okay right because i'm okay simply by being born this way and yet john was calling everyone jew gentile didn't matter who you were he was calling them to repent the kingdom is near be baptized in repentance As God draws near, as the kingdom is about to come. And so those who were baptized by them, by John, recognized their need and recognized their lack of righteousness. So they repented and they got baptized. That's the first group. There's a second group of people that show up on the scene here in Matthew 3. The second group of people were the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And if you're relatively familiar with uh, Scripture and, and know the history of the Bible, uh, these were the two religious sects of the uh, SECTS uh, of that time, uh, of, the, of, of the Israelite people. Right? Both of these groups were stri- known for their strict adherence to what they saw as God's law. Now, in many cases, they were adding on to God's law. They were creating their own rules and are telling people they had to follow it, right? Uh, but both groups were known to be very self-righteous. They were known to be prideful because they had power, uh, positions of power, influence, and reputation. And so it's kind of like higher-ups coming in to check on what is all this commotion about going on in the outskirts of our city, And as they draw near to John the Baptist, he has a very visceral reaction that we see in our passage, right? And he points out to them how their uh, dependence upon their religion, how their dependence upon their ethnicity was lacking. It was uh, useless. It was insufficient to escape the judgment to come. He talks about how in verse 9, that God himself can raise stones up that would have more honor than the children of Abraham. Because being an Israelite alone did not matter. He, he mentions how uh, an axe is coming for the roots of the trees that bear bad fruit. Talking about how they themselves were trees that were bearing bad fruit. And that that judgment was to come. And ends it in verse 12 with an even stronger image of, of chaff being burned up by an inquenchable fire. Being tossed into a fire. Needless to say, this group of people didn't get baptized and they didn't repent. And so you have two groups of people. One who recognized a need for change, recognized that uh, the king was coming and that they uh, wanted, needed to be saved by a God who was greater than themselves. And so they received uh, the baptism of repentance and worshipful response. And you have a second group that would not recognize what was going on. And refused to repent. They may have said they believed in God. But they composed for themselves. A religion that didn't require. Any repentance whatsoever. You know Martin Luther. The great theologian. Once said that all of life. Is repentance. All of the Christian life. Is repentance. And here at Grace Alameda. We value being a repenting. Community. Not because we like to dwell on our problems or our mistakes or our failures. But it's because we recognize how short we fall regularly of being good, loving, and righteous. And the reality is we are accountable to God who gathers us, like he does today, as a visible representation of the heavenly reality of the kingdom that has broken in. And so only in repentance, daily, lifelong repentance, do we learn to trust and hope in our King Jesus. And as a church, as we preach, um, as, we meet in our, as, as you meet in uh, community groups during the week, or even in your own time of prayer and being in the Word, we pray that uh, as you engage with God's people and God's Word in community, You're called to recognize your need to repent, and then you repent. It's something that was done in this time, and it's something that we continue to do today. Because repentance forms a foundation for faith, for turning to Christ. It also forms a foundation for the next chief value that we we care very much about. Humility before honor. You know, there's a first group of people who come and they get baptized because they repent. There's a second group of the Pharisees and Sadducees who stand off at a distance and cannot bear to hear what's going on. And then there's a last group or a last person. And that is Jesus himself who comes to John. John recognizes Jesus in that moment and immediately says, Whoa, I know who you are. I can't be baptizing you. It should be the other way around. And yet Jesus insists that he be baptized by John. And it's a very strange scene. You wonder what's going on, right? Because after all, John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. Why would Jesus, who has nothing to repent of, Jesus, who's the Son of God, perfectly righteous, perfectly holy, without sin, why would he need to repent? If anything, it's the people who need to repent to him. People who need to say sorry to him. People who, who want to become more like him. You know, we all know people in our day. You can think about this. People who demand honor, but demonstrate such little humility in that, right? Think of certain celebrities or certain athletes, perhaps certain co-workers in your own life. People you work with who, who talk about uh, how much honor they deserve how much respect they should be given, and yet have zero humility whatsoever about them. We find them very often to be very alienating, right? We find people like that to be very difficult to be around. Conversely, when you know someone who's deserving of all types of honor, who's deserving of all types of accolades, and yet they compose themselves with incredible humility, you love them even more for it, don't you? Right? People who are down to earth who are just the type of person who's empathetic and understands others, you you want to be around people like that. You delight being around around people like that because it doesn't go to their head. In humility, Jesus here allows himself to be baptized by John. Think about this. Jesus, who uh, would go on to die for the sins of John the Baptist, Jesus, who John says, I'm not worthy of carrying his sandals. Carrying sandals was something slaves did for their masters. And John the Baptist is saying, I'm not even worthy as a slave to do this work for him. And yet Jesus is willing in his humility to allow himself to be baptized by John. Why? Because what Jesus was doing was identifying himself with the people he had come to save. He was taking upon Himself and identifying Himself with the people that He had come to save. Christ was not interested, though He could have, though He was perfect, though He was without sin. He was not interested in standing off to the side with the self-righteous Pharisees and Sadducees, because He wasn't here for them. He was here for those who recognize their brokenness, failure, and need for a king. Luke 5, 31-32 says... Up on the screen, and Jesus answered them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Jesus, our King, came and brought in a kingdom where He was He would go and get in the water, He would get in the muck and the mire, so he could be with those that his father had sent him for. That's the kind of king we have. That's the kind of savior Jesus was. He displays the kind of kingdom he's bringing in. The value of humility and identifying himself with people. The incarnation itself. God taking on flesh to walk and be with us. To breathe like us. To eat like us. Right? To go through what it means to grow up as a child into an adult like us. All of that is identification and knowing the very people that Jesus came to save. And so when, we talk, when Jesus says, I need to be baptized to fulfill all righteousness, what he's talking about is not that baptism makes Jesus righteous. No, Jesus was already righteous. He's God in flesh. But baptism is part and parcel of what it means for him to be perfectly obedient to what his father had called him to do. That identifying himself with the people he had come to save was part of the mission that God had sent his son to go forth on. And so his baptism testifies that he is here. That the Messiah that was prophesied of for hundreds and thousands of years before. That the Messiah that was spoken of, the suffering servant that was to come, the good shepherd that was to care for the people, the high priest that was once again going to come, that he was now here. That every faint echo that they heard and remembered from the stories of the Israelite people, every faint echo of a Savior to come, they were going to be found in Jesus himself. Think about this. If, think about if Jesus were too proud to be baptized. If Jesus came up and was like, you know what? I probably don't need that water. I'm good, right? Because I'm holy already. And I don't need you who's going to be, who's, who, who I'm going to give my life for you later. So you, I really don't need you to do anything for me. Let's be honest, right? Um, that he were too proud to just allow this whole scene to happen. Does that type of person sound like the type of savior who will go on and give his life on the cross for his enemies? Does that sound like the type of savior who suffers and dies for those who would mock and scorn him? And yet this is the very character of Christ. And it gets to something very central to the message of the gospel that we often forget. Right? Right? is that we need the life of Jesus Christ, his perfect obedience, and his faithfulness to his heavenly Father just as much as we need his death. We love to talk about the cross. We are identified by the cross. I think there's a cross. There is there a cross behind the screen? There's a cross right here. There you go. It's like, I don't know. We're in a new building. Give me a break. Right? And very much so, we should talk about the cross, because at the cross, Jesus suffered and died. He paid the price for our sins. He atoned. He was the sheep who was slain, right? Atoning for all our sin. His blood was shed to to clean, wipe us clean. And yet, at the same time, the righteousness by which God sees us with, the perfect record that God regards us with, Only comes because Jesus lived in perfect obedience to his Father. And then transfers it to to us. It is the humble obedience of our Savior unto God the Father. That leads us to glorify and worship him. You need his perfect life. You need him to be baptized here. To identify himself with us. Not just because he's going to go to the cross, but because he's going to be perfect and do everything right. Because you need that perfect record for yourself. You know, in Philippians 2, 6 through 11, Paul actually outlines this perfectly. You'll see it up on the screen. He outlines perfectly how the humility of Jesus led him to obey perfectly, which then brings proper honor unto his name. Philippians 2, 6-11, it says, Jesus Christ, who, though he was in the form of God, did not, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in, hum, in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. It is the humility of Christ to allow himself to be baptized in this moment which is a sign for all the faithful obedience that he will live out The same obedience that will lead him to the cross to die. And the same obedience that brings him to rise up after three days. That becomes all ours. So we can gather and we can worship and we can glorify and honor him. Because of his humility. And the beautiful thing, Philippians 2, 6-11, which I just read. The verse before that, in verse 5, Paul says this. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. So this attitude, this life of Christ, of humility, leading into obedience, so that honor is given unto Christ. Paul says, this is how you ought to live. This is how you are called to be as the kingdom of God. This baptism of Christ and the manner in which he goes about it details not only what the king is about, but what the kingdom will be about. And so we do not seek honor apart from Jesus Christ. We don't seek honor apart from humility. We don't seek honor apart from obedience that is born out of faith, a humble faith that trusts in Jesus alone. You know, obviously, if I say, you know, at Grace, we're a humble community that totally defeats the purpose, right? You can't really call yourself humble without sounding proud but we do at Grace to want to grow in humility. Because the reality is, and there's, there's a lot of things that probably contribute to keeping us humble. One is worshiping at 4 p.m. in a different building all of a sudden, right? That keeps you humble. But we're not the biggest church on the block. We may not have the most vibrant worship or the most incredible children's ministry, whatever, right? There's all kinds of reasons why people might point at us and be like, that church is still getting it together. But we're okay with that. We're okay with that because we want to be a church that is first and foremost about the gospel, that is about the city that God has called us to be in, and about our neighbors. That's all we want to be identified in. We are a kingdom outpost. That's what we care about. And the honor that we desire is not for ourselves. It is all honor and glory unto God. And we know that means that we live in humble obedience to what God has brought us into in Jesus. Because Jesus is our king. He has met us in where we are and what we're at. So this humility that leads into honor that we see in Christ and that he calls the church into forms the final kind of foundation for the last value we're looking at. Confidence before calling. You know, after Jesus is baptized, this amazing scene happens, right? The heavens open up, the Spirit of God visibly descends on Jesus, and a voice from heaven speaks, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. As Jesus faithfully obeys his Father, God proclaims his delight over his child. Uh, Biblical scholars often look at this scene here in the the baptism of Jesus, and it's specifically this part where, uh, you know, uh, the the proclamation of uh, God's pleasure over Jesus And they see this as the the inauguration of Jesus' public ministry. That from here, Jesus is publicly sent forth to fulfill his messianic calling. Because God is declaring in this moment, My son, the king, is among you now. The one in whom all my delight is in. The one in whom I am fully pleased, who I know will do everything right. He is here now and he is going to bring my kingdom, the kingdom of heaven, to bear amongst you. Right. It's by this confident declaration, Jesus now goes and and is made known before people of who he is and what he is about to do. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. You know, it's an incredible sentence. It's one, if I'm going to be honest, I didn't hear very often growing up. It's one that I don't even hear today. You know, uh, my wife has never introduced me as this is my beloved husband with whom I am well pleased. (laughs) And frankly, no one in the congregation here today has ever introduced me to their friend and said, This is my beloved pastor with whom I am well pleased. It's okay, (laughs) God gives grace. I mean, because honestly, that's not something we usually say. It's not a way we talk to one another. But if you've ever heard anything like that, if you've ever heard or been introduced or been spoken of in this way, how powerful is it? If you've ever just been blessed to have someone speak that over you and say that about you, it's amazing, right? It's life-changing. You know, my, um, my father has never understood why I went and have gone into ministry. He's not a believer. But he's never, especially never understood why I chose to be a pastor. And when my grandfather died, his father, I was the one that they asked to do the ceremony. Because none of them really had any sort of, uh, as far as they saw, a spiritual bent. And didn't know how to deal with the situation very well. They just knew that there had to be a service of some sort. Um, And instead of hiring from someone outside, they just felt, well, he does this, right? So we should have him do it. And it was a small memorial, uh, just family. And you make the best of it, especially when you're in a room of family that doesn't talk about Jesus, doesn't think about Jesus, doesn't know Jesus. Um, But after, so we had our our memorial and it was, it came and it went and it wasn't easy, but... um, You know, I remember this very well. After the memorial, my dad came up to me. And he, he, very quiet, just didn't... Because he's still processing. He didn't really know how to handle the whole uh, situation um, emotionally. But he came up to me afterwards, and he really just had one thing to say to me. Looked me in the eye, and he said, You know, you might have actually picked the right job to do for a living. And then he walked away. It's not the same words, right? But... It means a lot for me to have heard that when he, for his whole, for my whole life, has always talked about how he doesn't understand what I do for a living or why I chose to do it. And it's not, you know, it just, it's something that really has helped shape my understanding of him. And it helps me kind of, it helps him understand a lot of what I do as well, that moment. You know, the reality is, I know that for a lot of us, we go about our days, and for a lot of us, and and I know I struggle with this too. I go about my day sometimes with this overwhelming, overpowering sense that I'm not very pleasing to anyone, that I'm not worth much to anyone. It's something that I've always struggled with personally. That's where my heart tends to go in its sadness or in its loneliness. Or when I fall into just a cycle of of self, just kind of self-loathing. And sometimes it's it's put in a person where uh, you just assume that your employer looks at you and is not pleased with you. Or you look at a family member, a spouse, and you just have this sense that they're not pleased with you. uh, That they're not well pleased with you. Sometimes it's a friend. Sometimes it's with God. And sometimes it's just in your own head, right? Sometimes it's something that, it's an inner thought or a voice that is whispering that in you. That's for some reason just saying, you are not pleasing. And if you've experienced that, you know how debilitating it is to live this way. How punishing it is to have that on your heart and to hear that whisper all the time. And for some of us, you hear that and it maybe drives you to work harder, right? And so you just, you know what? I'm gonna prove that I'm worth something. I'm gonna prove that I can be pleasing to someone. But the problem is, is that that drive may help you accomplish things, but it, it exhausts you, because it never fulfills, it never satisfies, because you're always gonna be driven, but with no real end goal. Because you're looking to be satisfied in a way that you'll never be satisfied. And that's one group of people. For another group who hear that voice in their head. The other group, right, that you just get driven down deeper and deeper into a spiral of self-pity. A spiral of shame. A spiral of guilt. And in either case, you're always haunted by the question, is anyone well pleased with me? When you look at this passage, has Jesus actually done anything yet? That's kind of the weird part, right? I mean, if you look at the passage in the first two chapters before this, it's all his childhood. Jesus hasn't actually accomplished anything, quote-unquote, at least from what's been written in the Scripture. And so from the very start, if this is the inauguration of his actual ministry, what we see here is that from the very start, before he did a single public work that was driving people toward the message of salvation that he was bringing as the king of a kingdom that was being brought in, that from the very start, he began with the approval of his father. He started knowing the pleasure of, of God without having lifted a single finger. And it is out of that approval that Jesus goes forth in perfect obedience. It is out of that approval that Jesus would climb on the cross. It is out of that approval that he would shed his blood and die. And it is out of that approval that he would rise and he would ascend. Because he lived not out of trying to earn something, but he lived fully knowing who he was as the son of the living God. Friends, the beauty of the gospel is that by faith in Christ, that very same approval, that very same sentence, that God the Father speaks on Jesus, he speaks on you today. That is an amazing reality to live out of, isn't it? That is a life-changing reality to live out of. How exciting, how amazing is that? Jesus, it's because Jesus took the punishment for us and he gives us his righteousness in exchange that God can look at us and see us the exact same way that he saw Jesus in this moment. You may not have a light that just shines from above and a dove Uh, like a spirit, like a dove descending, that may not happen to you, and that's okay. But the words that God utters here toward Jesus, he utters over you today by faith in him alone. And that's the kind of confidence you can live out of. That's the kind of approval we have, that you don't need to go running around and seeking That's a glorious and beautiful thing. That by faith in Christ, I can stand here and have unwavering confidence that God says right now with Kai, I am well pleased. That even amidst all the sinfulness in me and the brokenness and the ways I've screwed up and trust me, I, I know. And if I forget I'm married, so I won't forget. <laughs> but I know that even with all that, God looks upon me and says, With you, I am well pleased. And that can be true for you today. That's the reality you can live out of today. That's the type of approval that rests on you today. You don't need it from your boss, you don't need it from your wife. You don't need it from your kids. You don't need it from your job, from your friends, from your bank account. You have it in Christ. From God above, the King. What more do you need? Where else do you need to look? It is this approval that that, that helps us live out all the values of the kingdom that Christ leads us into. We repent and we can turn from our sinful ways because we recognize God's love for us in Christ. We can be humbled by a great merciful love, be filled with a desire to obey our God in all of life because the approval of our God rests on each and every one of us. You can have confidence that God has called you to be where you are and to go forth in faith, hope, and love. Grace Alameda, this is the kingdom that God has called us to be. This is the kingdom that he has called us to usher in in the East Bay. And so this afternoon, going into the rest of this week, rest in that delight, in that approval that God has over you. Live by that alone, by his grace alone. Stop fighting. Stop searching. Stop yearning for something that you can never get with your own hands. But realize and receive that it comes to you by grace in Christ. With you, he is well pleased. Let's pray.